0: Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American Patriots, scorned and forgotten taxpayers, and marginalized common sense Americans to the one and only CR podcast here at Blaze TV, Wednesday, December 9th. And folks, I am pretty indignant today. I'm pretty pissed off. I'm just warning you. Because we're going to talk about the big three C's. The courts, the crime, and the COVID fascism. Courts, crime, and COVID. What do they have to do with each other? They have everything to do with each other. They all tie in back to each other mechanically, but they also represent one principle I want to discuss today, if nothing else. It's a lot on the agenda. A lot of news subtopics in each of those three that I want to get to. Probably not going to have time. But there's one overarching theme that I think is bothering all of you. That the court system is always a one-way street and a dead end for us ordinary, common-sense Americans. And really, it's emblematic of the broader political system being a one-way street and a dead end. And the reason it is that way is because there is only one party... Fighting for the elites, but there is no equal and opposing force in the form of a Republican Party or something similar to it. Fighting for our cause, and in fact, the entire existence of the Republican Party by acquiescing to all of the cheating and game-changing things that the left does in the courts of in the course of politics and law in the courts and the political branches it traps us in a way where we get all the liabilities and none of the benefits from what the left does. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. How we see that with courts, crime, and COVID. It's a very deep thought, but I want to develop that today. The existence of the Republican Party actually makes it harder for us because if you only had the left pushing one side, we'd at least benefit in an ancillary sense From some of the stuff going on. And I'll start with the courts. And I'll work on down. And if you notice. We've had a very strong court system. In this country. The last several generations. Where the courts basically. Under the guise of granting relief to plaintiffs. Wind up giving standing. To anyone under the sun. To have any complaint. That is not individualized. But really political in nature. And they're really asking courts to resolve. A fundamentally political issue. And in the course of doing that, they override elections and they basically allow the left to use the courts as a winner-take-all system to win every political issue, whether it's social values, marriage, life, election law, immigration, you name it. They get what the affirmative action... I mean, there's all sorts of rights... They can't even not fund castration operations in prison in Idaho. They can't even not fund castration through Medicaid in Wisconsin. They cannot get rid of homeless encampments in Boise because the courts, and including Republican majorities often on some of these courts in the Supreme Court, they always either themselves rule or allow the lower courts to get away with ruling that there's all sorts of rights. So anything we ever accomplish and the few things we ever accomplish with Republican governance in red states get thrown out. Happens all the time. And those cheating things that they get to achieve in those uh, courts include election law, where over time they could build up an illegal system which allows them to get to a position that it's easier for them to win elections, but all of those gains are ill-gotten. And then when we finally have a grievance based on that, suddenly they're sticklers for standing, redressability. It's a political issue. We don't want to get involved. Oh, we, we, God forbid for us to override the states and state courts. Those of you who are smart probably already see where I'm headed with this. So there's two lawsuits on Pennsylvania, although... One really encompasses four states. And both of them, there's the Mike Kelly one, who is the congressman who is running in Pennsylvania. Then there's the Ken Paxton one, the Texas one, which 10 other Republican states have joined to sue those states not to uh, certify the electors until there's an investigation. And the overarching point in both of those is very, very sound. Okay? Very, very sound. Now, before we get to the role of the courts and the technicalities of standing, gestaciability, redressability, but let's just say, broadly, the two lawsuits assert that, look, there's a lot of allegations of fraud, and at least in a general sense, they're very legitimate. But even without delving into that, you just look at the body of mail-in ballots, the volume outpacing last election by the factor of 10 to 30 in these states is so overwhelming, so outlandish. And it was all built upon states overriding their duly passed statutes. And And the federal constitution basically says that elections are pursuant to state laws. So therefore, if you have a federal court, a state court, or even in one case, a state legislature itself, override its own laws, but in that case, it required a state constitutional amendment, a popular ballot referendum, Those law, those ballots are unlawful, period. Now we could say, well, it was already done and there's so many millions of people. Okay, we'll see about what to do about that, but that fact is, that is a simple fact that is true, a lot truer than all these lawsuits that wind up succeeding and getting judgment from courts that um, there's a right to camp out on, on streets, there's a right to transgender castration surgery, and for the state to pay for it. There's a right for illegal aliens to break into the country and get access to the courts and get whatever the hell they want in contravention to 130 years of case law. But somehow that never stands in their way. Somehow the issue of standing never gets in the way of illegal aliens, which is why in this very week where the Trump campaign is losing every single lawsuit in court, illegal aliens are getting the courts to say Trump must give them social security numbers and work permits. Because basically, the rules of the judiciary, the rules of law, the Constitution is whatever the Democrats say it is. Whatever political outcome they want is what they're going to do. So, let's just stipulate that obviously, this lawsuit was, um, you know... Both lawsuits really are very sound in terms of just the logic. Now, where it gets a little bit iffy. But I would argue it's only iffy under my construct of what the judiciary should be. And we should apply that to all the Democrat cases, too. But under the prevailing view of how easy it is to get standing, how courts decide fundamentally political issues. Up until the most fundamental political issues imaginable and redressability, it is very much in line with what the courts litigate all the time. But basically, as you saw, they threw out Congressman Kelly's lawsuit, the Supreme Court. Now, let me be technical here. They technically didn't throw it out. They just declined to put it, you know, to offer an injunction On certification, theoretically, they could still take up the case, but it didn't really seem like they would. Not 100%, maybe we'll see. But here it is, the court themselves recognized that the state was violating the law. They recognized that it it would infect the ultimate federal question imaginable. Who's going to be the president and vice president of the United States? It's the ultimate cross-state line issue. You know, not just something that what happens in that state stays in the state. The way they want to regulate abortion clinics in their cities. The way they want to um, deal with homeless encampments in their cities. Which, of course, the federal courts never have a problem getting involved in. Never, ever, ever problem getting involved in. Suddenly it's here, well... And I understand basically what they what they probably just didn't like the smell of it, of look, because because before we get to the Texas lawsuit, this lawsuit was very unique. It wasn't dealing with all of the state supreme court decisions and the um, Wolf administration, the Democrats, their Secretary of State overriding the state legislature. It actually dealt with Act seventy seven, which was before COVID and was actually done by the state legislature to allow mail-ins in a more uh, liberal way. But again, the problem is there, even the state legislature violated their own thing, because it such a change pursuant to the state constitution requires constitutional amendment, and the people would have had to have voted on that change itself. But they're like, look, the state legislature voted on it, the state Supreme Court upheld it, we know it smells, I'm just like... Trying to put words into the five justices mouths, you know, the five so-called conservatives in the court. Look, we just don't like getting involved. We don't think it's the role of the courts. And also, like, what do you want us to do already anyway? Like, just give declaratory judgment. You know, a court is not just, you know, to spew things. It's it's like, hey, grant relief to a plaintiff. But the, what, what's the relief? We overturn the election. We can't, you know, we can't do that. The political branches should decide that. Look, I am okay with that mentality if that's the mentality we have always all the time. But here's the problem. This case, maybe it's not so much like that, but in most other cases, it actually is the federal courts that are getting these states to do all this election chicanery that gets us into this position. You have this all the time. I'm all for judicial restraint. But you can't have judicial restraint built on top of endless conflicting judicial supremacism and judicial radicalism. You can't have it both ways. Hey, you want to keep the federal courts out of stuff? Gee, where have we heard that before? A legislature passed something. The state Supreme Court said it was fine. Gee, we heard that a lot in North Carolina. With all that election law, all that election law that was overturned by the Fourth Circus that the Supreme Court never rectified. All these conservative justices, they seem to be such sticklers for like not getting involved to overturn leftist stuff on technicalities, which in a vacuum I could appreciate. But I would then expect I am fine with that. If it's a two-way street, if we're going to live under a system where more or less on issues that implicate broad political questions in the states, they stay the hell away from it. And if the lower courts um, get involved at a federal level, the Supreme Court in a minute overturns that. Or alternatively, if Republicans would actually say, screw you and do what they want in those states and stop listening to it. But of course, they obsequiously empower judicial supremacism supremacism for so long. And then finally, when we have an opportunity to come crying to the courts, when we have at least a more legitimate case than they've had in any of these cases where they use the courts, talk to the hand. That's what what I resent. I am, as you well know, consistent, intellectually honest. You know, I'm fine with having a certain construct of the judiciary. Now, you go on to the Texas lawsuit. And so that, that I feel, I mean, look, we'll wait and see. It could be they're not taking the Kelly one because they want to take the Texas one. In the case of the Texas one, they're going after more of the matching signatures. The extra ways that the Secretary of State loosened laws that weren't passed by the state legislature. So that I could see, it, it, legally, it's, it's the same thing as what Kelly is pushing. It's just the difference is there, technically, the legislature did it as wrong as it was pursuant to the state's constitution. I could picture just like, just optics-wise, the Supreme Court, especially if you're a conservative justice, you don't want to look like you're going after that. So perhaps they will take up this. We'll know maybe by the time you even hear this broadcast. Certainly know by Friday. But, you know, here's the deal. Paxton, this is a very clean lawsuit. He's not asking for them to certify Trump as the winner or to throw out a specific number of votes or any number of votes. They're just saying, look, we meet to vote for electors as Texas and the other states. You can't have other states not playing as fairly as we are and following their laws. You're right. You're Pennsylvania, you're Wisconsin, your laws, your business. You could do what you want. But whatever those laws are, you have to follow them just like we followed our laws. So you can't infect the electoral college that we're going to be sitting in. This is the ultimate cross-state dispute of which the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction. So for those of you who don't realize... I say this all the time, Congress could actually strip the Supreme Court of all of its appellate jurisdiction. Any case that doesn't originate them, they could say you can't hear it. People forget that, Article 3, Section 2. But the first clause of that, it actually lays out four cases where they're special cases where they actually have original jurisdiction, meaning you take your lawsuits straight to the Supreme Court. And according to Alito and Thomas, they wrote this in a um a case involving uh, Nebraska versus Colorado with marijuana laws recently, a couple of years ago, that actually the Supreme Court is required to hear it. They could dismiss it, but they have to hear the case. They have to allow them to file the case and file it originally with the Supreme Court. It's cases dealing with ambassadors, certain other things, and then, of course, state party disputes. So, for example, like a couple of years ago, there was a dispute between Georgia and Tennessee over the boundary of a waterway. So that went straight to the Supreme Court. Doesn't wind its way through the federal district and federal appeals courts first. So that's the story with that. They have original jurisdiction. And basically their point is... Now look, I'm less sympathetic to the... They're asking for two forms of relief. So first the standing, I actually agree with the standing. It's a federal question, it's an interstate question... They're saying, have them push off the December 14th deadline for voting because we can't vote on it. These votes are infected. And like like I'm going to read from the lawsuit, not infected in the sense that we believe there was fraud. Well, that needs to be proven. But it's... As I've noted, there's ballot fraud and there's election law fraud. We already see prima facie that no court could deny that they unilaterally changed the laws that enabled a tally of malins that are way beyond the margin of victory for Biden. Okay, that is beyond dispute. Now, look, I don't typically like asking the Supreme Court to tell a state to push off, like, look, you want to vote, then vote. But really, ultimately, it's Senate Republicans. It's their job not to certify the election. That's ultimately the final say is really Congress on certification. But of course, the Republicans aren't going to do that. So we're stuck in this one-way street where courts are talked to the hand. The second form of relief they're asking for is just a declaratory judgment on Just telling us, as as Marshall said, what the law is, that these ballots that were cast were unlawful if they were pursuant to changes not made by the legislature. It's very simple. Now you might say, well, Daniel, I mean, courts, you know, if you want to grant relief, grant relief. What's this with declaratory judgment? Again, courts do it all the time. Should they do it on a political question? That's something I would love to talk about. But that's a lot better than courts actually granting illegal relief to illegal aliens and all sorts of things and messing up our society and basically overriding elections all the time. In fact, we are only in a position of Democrats having this much power because of a cascading effect of illegal Supreme Court interventions in our political system on issue after issue after issue. But suddenly now, the courts are hands-off, hands-off. Look. I am totally fine to walk away with this and say, wow, courts are real sticklers for not getting involved in, in you know, clean issues of standing redressability, rightness, political questions broadly. But then let's apply that e- evenly. I could walk away with that. I'll trade the Biden election for that. But of course, no, it's a one way street and a dead end because Republicans tolerate all of the judicial shenanigans when it harms us. And then when the the court's not there when, you know, to benefit us. It's a one way street. This is why I say all the time I am all for just ending the entire concept of judicial review, even though there is an appropriate angle for it. If you understand it properly, we've done a lot of shows on that. But if we can't handle it as a society without having judicial supremacism, then let's end it completely. I'm fine for that. And that would foreclose such avenues that the Trump campaign and, and others are pursuing on the election. But you know what? That would foreclose 90% of the avenues through which the Democrats use to remake our society, too. But, of course, it's a one-way street and it's a dead end. But I just want to read to you just the summation of of what they're alleging in all four states. It's a good summary. You know, it's a 154-page complaint from Paxton. But, I mean, the, the point is undeniable. The point they're making is undeniable. That the number of votes affected by the various constitutional violations exceed the margin of votes separating the candidates. And basically, Pennsylvania, the story is like this. Secretary of State, Kathy Beckoffer. Without legislative approval, unilaterally abrogated several PA statutes requiring signature verification for absentee or mail-in ballots. The legislature never uh, um, ratified those changes. The League of Women Voters used the judicial process to get declaratory judgment that Pennsylvania cannot do signature matching. The Secretary of State settled that case. Again, The court system created this. I want to make it very clear. And this was federal court. Oh, Daniel, don't don't come crying to to the federal court. It's a state issue. Dude, they got the Eastern District of PA. It's a federal district court. Forced, because of that lawsuit, it triggered a settlement where the Secretary of State, without the permission of the legislature, settled on September 11th. On an agreement to basically set aside return absentee mail in ballots solely on signature analysis by the board. The guidance is contrary to Pennsylvania law, which mandates that for non disabled, non military voters, all applications for absentee or mail in ballots shall be signed by the applicant. They did away, unconstitutionally, with the statutory signature verification requirements. Approximately 70% of the requests for absentee ballots were from Democrats and 25% from Republicans. Thus, this, un, 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 and I'm just paraphrasing and reading a little bit on and off, that the unconstitutional abrogation of state election law greatly injured, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, great, greatly insured, um and bolstered Biden's uh you know chances of winning additionally the Pennsylvania legislature you know obviously enacted the stuff we talked about that you know act 77 that violated the state's constitution And then again, Pennsylvania election law also requires the poll watchers to be granted access to the opening, counting, and recording of ballots. Prior to the election, Secretary Beckoffer sent an email to local election officials urging them to provide opportunities for various persons to contact voters to cure defective mail in ballots. The curing, that process, completely violated like three different sections of of Pennsylvania election law. Pure and simple. That curing sample, that curing process was only done in the two heav- heaviest democrat counties, Philadelphia and Allegheny. That's Pittsburgh. Aware of the historical Democrat advantage in those counties, they violated Pennsylvania election code and adopted the differential standard favoring voters in Philly and Allegheny with intent to favor former VP Biden. And that is obvious. Absentee and mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania were thus elevated under an illegal standard regarding signature verification. It is now impossible to determine which ballots were properly cast. That is a reality. The change process allowing the curing of absentee and mail-in ballots in Allegheny and Philly... Is a separate basis on a separate basis resulting in an unknown number of ballots being treated on constitutional manner. Great number of ballots were received after the statutory deadline, and yet were counted by virtue of the fact that Pennsylvania did not segregate all ballots received after APM. Beck offers claim that only about ten thousand ballots were received after this deadline has no way of being proven since Pennsylvania broke its promise to the court to segregate ballots and and commingled perhaps tens or even hundreds of thousands of late ballots. Especially by the way, I would add the fact that originally they said there would be a certain number of ballots and then they wound up having a few hundred thousand more, which of course did wound up being the margin that was able to get Biden to, to overtake Trump. Then obviously there's the voter regularities. The Ryan report, this is Congressman um, this is a state representative with, along with 15 other people, men in the legislature they wrote a report they documented irregularities and impropri- improprieties associated with mail in balloting pre-canvassing canvassing that the reliability of the mail in votes is impossible to rely upon they found 9000 ballots with no mail ballots with no mail date they found 58221 ballots returned on or before the mail date <laughs> They found 51,200 ballots returned one day after the mail date. These nonsensical numbers alone total 118,426 and exceed Biden's 81,000 vote lead over Trump. But these discrepancies pale in comparison to the discrepancies in Pennsylvania's reported data concerning the number of mail-in ballots distributed to the populace. The Ryan Report states as follows. That... In a data file received on November 4th, the Commonwealth's, Commonwealth PA's open data sites reported over 3.1 million mail-in ballots sent out. The CSV file from the state on November 4th depicts 3.1 million mail-in ballots sent out, but on November 2nd, the information was provided that only 2.7 million ballots had been sent out. The discrepancy of approximately 400,000 ballots from November 2nd to November 4th has not been explained. There you go. And then, of course, they get into see, this is the thing where there's smoke there's, uh, and, and fire. We already have not just smoke, but fire on the laws. These ballots are illegal. And they're like, well, but maybe like people meant to cast them properly. Well, they're still illegal. And then you know that mail-ins are wrought with fraud. We know they did this to benefit him. We know they did this and certain things in only Democrat counties. We know they kicked out the poll workers. It's enough saying, stop it. huh Your burden of proof is not enough. You didn't prove it. You didn't prove it. What, what the hell do you want us to prove? According to the U.S. Election Assistance Commission's report to Congress, in 2016, Pennsylvania received 266,208 mail-in ballots just 0.95% were rejected. In 2020, they received more than 10 times the number. Much larger volume of mail-in ballots were treated in an unconstitutional manner. They did away with signatures. They blocked poll workers. They had curing policies only in Democrat areas. And this time... Um... I'm sorry, I meant to say 1% of them were rejected that, that time. This time, more than 10 times the number of mail-in ballots were received. Yet, the rejection rate was a fraction of that. And again, it, you you could go through, this is just a basic summation of what went on in Pennsylvania. How could we look at that and say. All right, you know. Sorry, no standing. (laughs) Ha ha ha. Stinky lawsuit. If you had a Republican Party like you had in 1876, the state legislatures in all these four states would appoint Republican elector slates. And. And it would come before Congress to certify House Democrats would refuse to certify Republican, the Republican slate, but Republicans have the Senate. And if you had a real Republican party, they would refuse to approve the Democrat slate in those states. And you would have a stalemate and you would have to reach some sort of a compromise. And at the very least, if you'd have Biden as president, we would say we, the, we as the Senate will sign off on Biden. If we get certain things On judicial supremacism, it could be corona-fascism, it could be election law, it could be a mixture of all of them. A grand bargain to make everyone happy. But alas, we don't have a Republican Party, because alas, the reason why we're in this predicament to begin with, that Republicans in the legislatures refused to pass concurrent resolutions that would have weighed a lot in court anyway, preemptively saying these votes are null and void, They failed to fight back against judicial supremacism when they had the opportunities. The Republican Party makes it that we are always at the short end of the stick in the court system, no matter what. No matter what. And I want to just get to, in case we don't have time, I'm going to stop here. I was going to read the summation of the other three states, but it's a similar story in Wisconsin, Michigan, Georgia. It's a very good lawsuit. Whether it has, whether whether you could talk about the standard and the the, the standing and, and what t- type of redress is appropriate for the court to do, we we could talk about that. But the point is true. It is a lot more valid than claims illegal aliens have that they have a right to be here and have citizenship documents, and yet courts not only countenance it but rule in their favor. But there's courts' crime and COVID. Let me give you a similar dynamic with a one-way street, and that is the police. The police are a damn one-way street to us. Again, because Republicans push jailbreak and Republicans... See, Republicans have this game of, don't defund the police. They always fight the next hypothetical tranche of Democrat radicalism while ignoring the more effective way the Democrats are actually implementing their policies right here and now, and even joining in with it. See, they've already abolished the police in its worst sense. See, police are good and bad. I mean, they're mainly good, but they're potentially dangerous. In other words, police are good because you can't have anarchy and you need them to deter and punish and apprehend. And then the, the as when I say police, I mean, part of that is the judicial system to lock up the criminals. But there's also, let's face it, I mean... and we're seeing this with corona fascism, these governors and mayors, the only thing making them impactful in our lives beyond just some lunatic spewing is the fact that they have what? They have a police force. That is, how do you think they have the power to do any of this? The police force. So Republicans have enabled a situation where like, don't abolish the police. Just like they're, don't pack the courts, don't mess up judicial supremacism. I would have allowed the Democrats to attack the court. You know what? We never benefit from the court anyway, having conservative judges. So you know what? At least we won't get hurt by them. And in in the states where we control, we can do what we want. But no, Republicans back judicial supremacism. Same thing with jailbreak and the police. They support jailbreak, which basically neuters the police anyway. And then we're left with nothing but the liabilities of them. So you know what? I want to abolish the police then. I'd rather join with the left and say, i call their bluff. See, the Democrats don't want to abolish the police. What do you think all these governors and mayors will do? They want to go after us. They need the police. And this is happening in red states. I wrote about this today in Houston. Mentioned a little bit yesterday. Homicides are up 44%. You know why? Because all the murderers are let out, and they murder again. This guy, Edward O'Neill, five years ago, five years ago, he's mentally ill, he's criminally insane, and he engaged in a, like what, what is believed to be a ritualistic, satanic murder of his friend where he brutally just cut up his body. He was 18 years old when he did it. Okay, that was that was uh, I think January February uh, January twenty fifteen or January twenty sixteen. He confessed three times to to it. Got a confession. June of this year, he was let out on twenty five thousand bond. This is a man who confessed to a satanic murder. Now you might ask. Why, how, how was he out? Oh, I'm sorry, I missed the main point. Five months later, November 28th, this was in the news this week in Houston media, he he's was arrested accused of murdering 39-year-old Derek Mike. You might ask, how the hell was he let out? Like, he confessed to murdering. So how was he let out on 25000 bond? And moreover, five years later, or this is like four and a half years later, how was he still on pretrial bond and not in prison you know, post-conviction? Why was he convicted? And the answer is basically the lawyers were able to spend four and a half years gumming up the system based on all sorts of mental illness. They put him in a mental health court and this and that, and he never wound up even getting a conviction yet, still pre-trial. And then, well, well you're holding him so long and he wasn't convicted yet, and he's mentally ill. So they let him get out. A murderer, a self confessed murderer. Okay, wasn't convicted, but he confessed three times. 25,000 bond. Now, folks, Reagan railed against this 30 years ago. He warned, I mean, 40 years ago, he warned about the criminally insane being let out. I mean, he experienced this firsthand with Hinckley when he was shot by him. And the left likes to have it both ways. See, they want to say, oh, well, it's not their fault they're they're mentally ill. Okay, so if that's an argument to not put them in a regular prison and put them in a mental asylum, then fine. But the last thing you could do is let them out. Because if anything, they're the most dangerous people because they're just satanic. See, a lot of typical targeted murders, it's like you had a business deal with someone, you had a love affair, and you had a it was it was it was very targeted towards an individual and I'm not saying they shouldn't be locked up for life or even get the death penalty. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying if you look at it from a public safety standpoint, technically, they're not really a, a, a threat to, to other people. Whereas if you're just indiscriminately butcher people, you're mentally ill, you're that type of person. So then you're really a, a danger. You're the biggest danger. But they want to have it both ways. They want they want to do de-incarceration, but then they also want to they, – they've closed all the mental asylums. They've, they've shut that down. So this is a huge crisis with all the criminally ill people that are that are uh, genocidal. They're all on the streets. And then in general, we have the bail break problem. I mean, I wrote about this already a couple times this past year in Harris County, Houston. You had a judge who initially there was pressure, so I think he backed down, but he offered an accused cop killer relatively low bail, despite his history of being released on crimes. There was actually videos of him throughout the years being released on crimes and bragging about it on how he gets out with very little bond. Then he went on to kill a cop and still was offered like, maybe it was 100,000. In February, another guy, Gerald Washington, was accused of murdering a random man in Houston. You know, guy stopping at a convenience store, just, you know, wasn't targeted killing. Here's the deal. That guy had been released just hours before for another murder. And he had a long rap sheet before that. According to Andy Kahn of Crime Stoppers Houston, 57 victims have been murdered in Harris County over the past two years by defendants who had been released on multiple felony bonds and personal recognizance bonds. And that doesn't account for all those who served light prison sentences or let out of prison early, you know, they did wind up serving, but very lightly and went on to murder murder. And the, and the momentum is getting worse every day. That's why if you look from November 21st to December 4th, past couple weeks, Houston has experienced twice as many murders over that period since the previous year. There's been a 65% rise in domestic violence calls to the Houston area women's center center hotline this year. According to police, the number of strangulations in Houston has doubled. It's a mixture. see that that part, the domestic violence is a mixture of jailbreak and also just the corona fascism and the panic porn and just making people so crazy that they become violent. It, the, the, the two issues are mixing together the corona and the crime and the jailbreak. So even in a state like Texas, the Texas legislature is meeting on they're reconvening in January. They have the governor. They have lieutenant governor, they have the attorney general who, give him credit, he did uh, file a good lawsuit. And they have both houses of the legislature. How do you have crime laws like this? And I guarantee you there's no effort to address this in the legislature. Just like there won't be an effort to address corona fascism. So, there's a lot of points to be made about this, about the fecklessness and, and perfidy of the Republican Party. But just as a baseline, what I want to say tying into our thesis today, just like the court system and judicial supremacism is a one-way street and a dead end for us, and if we can't benefit from going to the courts, even when we have legitimate cases, then I think we should join with the left to delegitimize and pack the courts and just make a joke out of it, so at least we can run away from it. Same thing with the police. The police have been abolished, including in red states. And what I mean by that is even where the police legitimately try to patrol and apprehend, they're released. And that's not the police's fault, but they're released. So you know what? I don't want to hear this Republican whining about abolish the police. Because the police are, if you gave me a choice between the status quo and abolishing police, I would choose abolishing the police. Because the status quo is the police are abolished for what they're supposed to be used for but where they are being used against you and me if we ever get into a self-defense situation and for corona-fascism. I have to walk around terrified because of the carjackers in my area of Baltimore. And the police aren't there for me. But you know where they are there? To catch me going a reasonable speed on the road for corona-fascism and... If I ever wanted to carry, they don't allow you to carry here. All right, I'll defend myself. Whoops, you can't do that. Because believe me, if I were forced to shoot someone attacking me and that guy happened to be of a certain ilk that is favored by our dual justice system, well, guess what? The police will certainly be there to put me in handcuffs. So you know what? F the police. I agree with all those chants. And it's not to say that the majority of them, of course, are patriotic people. But I mean this particularly directed towards big city police departments. Not the rural county sheriffs. Big city police departments and some of the immediate suburban counties around that. Screw you. If this is all you're going to do, then you know what? I'd rather abolish the police. It's not good, but we've already actualized and incurred that problem. So I uh, may as well capitalize on the benefit of being able to defend myself without worrying about me being prosecuted and basically taking the teeth out of COVID fascism and doing what we want. If the police are going to serve as nothing but tools for lawlessness of these mayors and governors then you know what? We should abolish, abolish the police. Republicans always make the wrong arguments at the wrong time in the wrong place, and we get the worst of all things. We get the judicial supremacism against us, but the courts aren't there for us. We get the police there to arrest Kyle Rittenhouse. We get them to shut down churches and private schools that are terrified. These young kindergarten kids in private schools that have to sit there with masks on their face, Voodoo, satanic rituals that violate every tenet of of science and data. Child abuse. Because maybe the officials will come down. Screw it. I'm sick of everything being a one-way street and a, a dead end. All enabled and brought to you by the Republican Party. Screw it all to hell. So I don't want to hear about this all rules of standing. We always find ourselves on the short end of the stick. Always, always, always. Crime, COVID. That's the thing. You know, you thought like, all right, now we'll finally benefit from the courts. I mean, dude, you want to talk about a non-political issue. Political issue is like determining a broad issue. But if you're saying, I'm going to lock you up for not wearing a mask. I'm going to contact trace you. I'm going to force quarantine you. I'm going to force vaccinate you. Dude, I mean, that's an individual case for that. I mean, that's why courts were created. Talk to the hand. Talk to the hand, the courts tell us. See, everyone laughs. Oh, this is just a voodoo allegation of fraud. Trump has bozo lawyers, clowns. They, they have typos and mistakes. Of course, they're going to throw out the losses. But you know what? They throw out very well-crafted lawsuits from individual plaintiffs crying out from the g- gross violations of the Constitution infringements upon individual rights. Oh, the courts are the guardians of rights. No, they're not. They're the guardians of criminals. They're the guardians of illegal aliens. And they're the guardians of social licentiousness. Nothing more, nothing less. All those Republican and conservative judges, they're never there for us when we need them but they never fully and consistently use their principles that they throw against us to throw against other sides' lawsuits. Or even if they do, they're always in the minority, and the other side always winds up winning. Both sides of the equation. Well, I'm sick of that. If we're not going to have the republic the way it was supposed to be, then I at least want to benefit from one side of the equation. And if they get to do what they want regardless of the courts, then I think we need to do what we want, regardless of the courts. If they get to do what they want, and murder and maim and riot, regardless of the existence of the police, then I want us to have self-defense, and be able to live and breathe, without the police breathing down our necks. That's the reality of the times we live in. There's also a lot more going on. I wanted to get to this Christine Fang case Chinese espionage, a foreign Chinese student. We have nearly 400,000 Chinese students in the country every year. It's a known problem. Republicans are passing, um, you know, three quarters of the Republicans agree with the Democrats in the House to pass a National Defense Authorization Act that changes the names of our bases, that doesn't do anything to focus our national defense priorities on China. We should have in the NDAA provision stripping out Chinese student visas, F1 visas, ending worker visas for China. Of course, it has a whole provision. They're attacking small business. It's a whole other thing. But Republicans are always on the wrong side. Again, folks, if you only had a Democrat party in this country, the people would rebel Certainly in 50% of the country. But in that case, people would be so ticked off, it would be even more. and We'd be able to start a new movement, new party. The Republican Party serves as nothing but dead grass in a field of dead grass. Where it can't grow, but we can't replace it. They serve as nothing but a fat rear end blocking the entranceway to the battlefield for us to actually effectively combat the left. How much longer are we going to put up with this? How much longer are we going to put up with it? We're not going to allow the forces of tyranny to continue driving down that highway like a one-way street. We're either going to shut down that highway or if we can't, we'll drive down it too. And we'll use their principles for the way we want. I'm sick of this... I'm a principled conservative by allowing the left to get all their advantages by usurping the Constitution. But then anything we want to do to fight it. Well, Daniel, that, that, that really, that, that's not really that's not it's not good. Doesn't have a right standing. That's no, no, I don't want to hear that garbage. I'm not going to this, my friends, is where we can apply the famous adage. From um, Justice Jackson. That the Constitution is not a suicide pact. And I'm sick of this suicide pact. We're going to develop this thought and others throughout the week and next week before the Christmas break. Send me your thoughts, comments, questions, and concerns to dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. Let's discuss this more at minimum speak easy. Our private page, our public page, is Horowitz Citizen Sanctuary before Facebook shuts us down. You can follow me on Parlor at DEH0414, Twitter at Conservative. I know this was a little deep point I made today and I tied together loosely several things that follow that point. I hope you got it. Again, for those of you who are new to the show and I'm thankful for all of you, these are the type of shows we put out. Very different content than you're going to hear from almost anyone, liberal or conservative. Truly independent thought. I'm thankful for your countenance, for your endorsement, for your dissemination of the show. Continue sending it to your friends and relatives Till tomorrow. God bless y'all and let's fight on.